right. Um, it was a good talk because I learned a lot about things, you know, what the status of things are, especially when it comes to marijuana. So I think it will be um, uh, very educational and informative. So basically, I framed it more as to what every parent wants to ask us because, you know, this is sort of like as they're the the child has walked out of the room quickly and the parents are sort of lagging behind them and they're like, let me just ask you one more question, which becomes, how about sex, alcohol, smoking, marijuana, you know, and sleep? I won't say they asked me about opioids, but I think opioids is a, is a thing we need to talk about and there's some recent publications in pediatrics. So I'm going to sort of walk you through all of these various um, topics and um, we'll go from there. So I'm going to first talk about um, one of the questions they ask is, um, or the, a patient will say that I have a change in symptoms around the time of my period, or I notice that my daughter tends to flare. Or, and I use air quotes for flare because it just means that there are more, maybe more symptoms. It's not that they're necessarily having an actual flare. And I go back to um, a publication from about four years ago, which actually looked at what uh, if between Crohn's and UC, what do they find, and do they find there's a difference in terms of um, symptoms? And IBD symptoms tend to increase in um, the menstru- at time of menstruation in Crohn's patients more than UC. It doesn't. It does appear that both premenstrual and sort of any cyclical type symptoms is seen both in UC and Crohn's disease. Um, and no difference between the two because it was unclear whether or not, for example, the proximity of the left colon to the uterus, if there's sort of like an irritation due to inflammation at the time of, of um, at the time of menstruation, and there's just here showing you that the purple is no symptom change based on the type of birth control and the largest um, symptom improvement. Interestingly, um, I mean, sort of the no symptoms change you can see is consistent. But in terms of symptoms improved, they talk about maybe in the IUD, which is interesting because there's a lot of discussion now in our older patients about hormones and the impact on DVTs and the hypercoagulable risk and whether or not we should put non-hormone IUDs or recommend that to um, women who are discussing about uh, birth control. So that's an interesting sort of sidebar discussion that I'm having with some of my college-age students or those that are going off to college about whether or not they should have hormones versus non-hormonal because a lot of people read that maybe birth control could worsen IBD or a lot, there was even a study back in the nurse's health study that Ashwin published a while ago that's saying that in the nurse's health study, those women who did get birth control actually had a higher rate of IBD, which took us back like 40 years ago when there was this discussion that um, maybe it had to do with the higher estrogen type of birth control. So there's some discussion around. Right now, I would tell you that I'm not telling women to avoid birth control. So that's um, where I am right now, even in terms of the pill. But I do talk to them about maybe the preference of a non-hormonal IUD, actually. So what are the trends? So that what will we be um, looking at in terms of our our patient age group, and this is just showing you the trends in birth control um, across various ages. And you could see here, if you look at IUD, for example, which is the the IUD peaks sort of in our college age students comes down. Um, hormonal, you could see, really picks up, um, and then the um, 
barrier type of, of um, birth control tends to decrease as women get older, obviously. But this is just showing you sort of what we're dealing with in terms of the, um, the age group. So it just shows you sort of where we are in terms of what are you can expect to have a conversation about. And I'd say IUD and birth control are sort of like our signature, and the pill are our signature discussions that we're having in the age group that we would be uh, managing. One thing though, I bring up the role of DVTs and the risk factors is, as we know, if there is birth control, um, hormonal birth control and risk of, of um, DVTs, this was published by Millie Long's group, and that was also the, the one I just showed you, the trends in which birth control is being used based on age. And what she saw is that in patients who had multiple risk factors for DVTs, they were equally taking as many birth con- you know, hormonal birth control as people who had no risk factors. So they were feeling that this was an opportunity for us to educate and intervene. If we're the ones that are kind of counseling um, people going off to college about what type of birth control that maybe we should be having a conversation about the reality of making sure we know whether they have other risk factors for um, DVTs. So this was sort of the point of this slide is just to say we are often the ones that are um, advising on birth control or at least giving them the okay. I think we should understand that there are risks of hormone um, therapy in people with other risk factors for DVTs. Of course, uh, how does alcohol um, impact? And they all say it, and the child is in the room, and the child's underage, so you're like, okay, um, let's talk about underage drinking first, and then let's just say, in the scenario where I'm not promoting underage drinking, but I also don't live in a cave, I would like to say that you know what we have is very minimal on the, on the risk of alcohol in general. There's not a lot out there on sort of what it does. This paper sort of was interesting. It actually showed that red wine um, may actually lower your calories protected risk um, before drinking you had a higher calpro in UC so maybe not only are cigarettes good drink so UC is all about smoking and alcohol is being really anti-inflammatory so um, take that back to you I'm sure that'll go over well um, so th- this was just showing in UC interestingly that red wine actually impacted the calpro which I thought was funny um, but then they were looking at whether or not wine this is where it may be more applicable is that interestingly in Crohn's disease it actually increased intestinal permeability, which may lead to more inflammation. So you can sort of, um, it's sort of a glass, no pun intended, glass half empty, glass half full approach to UC versus Crohn's. So um, maybe there's something to it. But the idea that uh, alcohol may obviously in patients who are on methotrexate, for example, you cannot dismiss the idea that you have to have that discussion with them. And I know that it's not just about the concerns of pregnancy, it's also the concerns of going to college on metho and alcohol ingestion. That's probably more something that is more uh, reality about why um, people would stop metho before going to college is probably more even the alcohol. But there's not a lot out there other than, you know, if you drink and you have a drug that's actually metabolized by the liver, that may impact clearance, that may impact toxicity. Other than that, and just feeling bad and the other general risks of alcohol, there's not a lot written. And I have to be honest with families that ask me, you know, what do you, what can you tell me anything so I can tell my kid not to drink? And I'm saying, that's not reality. And the first question I ask, are you joining a fraternity? Because that is a deal breaker on sort of knowing that 
drinking one glass of red wine while you're talking about the world isn't going to happen. This is about hard alcohol and beer, um, just like Brett Kavanaugh, sorry. But yes, so the idea that, you know, beer is actually going to be probably the most commonly um, drunk, um, you know, part of uh, alcohol, we don't have a lot of data on how that impacts any of our medication and actually the disease. So this was it. This is as good as we get in terms of alcohol. Smoking was is very interesting. You know, we def- definitively talk talk about all of the different things that smoking has been associated with. Um, It's protective, again, in theory, in UC, um, and it increases the risk of developing CD in some of the epidemiology studies, increases risk of relapse and hospitalization, um, may increase, uh, decrease the effectiveness of TNF. There's been some studies that look at the role of um, smoking and the ability to respond to therapy. So there's a lot out there on sort of the negative effect of smoking Crohn's, and then, again, with UC, it's not as, um, as clear-cut in terms of how it affects response to therapy. We know there's an association even with pouchitis um, as well as with um, potentially protective against UC. So I'd have to say that, again, there's not a lot of amazing data, and a lot of the data comes from animal models and sort of retrospectively looking at who remembers how many cigarettes if you say, I ever smoked. I mean, it could have been when you were 16, you had like a month of smoking cigarettes, and then, you know, and that's ever smoked. And so the reality is most of our smoking data is horrible. There's not a good way of quantifying whether or not truly smoking is impacting prognosis. I'll be honest with you. A lot of it is retrospectively, did this patient ever smoke? Yes, no. Tie it to maybe the risk of not responding to TNF as an example. But one thing that was recently published, which I thought was interesting, comes from the risk cohort. And this was um, Ashwin. Ashwin uh, was the leader on this, on this project and actually looked at does smoking, um, maternal smoking exposure... Uh, um, did that affect prognosis and disease outcome in our risk cohort? So again, it's a far stretch, but I'm just going to show you um, what, they, what they actually showed, and that it didn't impact whether or not you develop complicated Crohn's disease, despite what is all over the literature, is that smoking is tied to more stricturing, post-op recurrence, et cetera. Again, not, not the the best way to assess this is to go backwards and, you know, and then look at the age of 12, what's happening. But I do want to tell you that there is some discussion that hospitalization was increased in babies exposed to mater- and those with IBD now um, and maternal exposure um, as an environmental factor. I don't know. I, it's published. Take it for what it is. And that breastfeeding was actually protective against developing complicated Crohn's disease. So these were like, out of a lot, these were like the two risk factors that were looked at. But I wanted to bring in the smoking piece to say is that even though we say a lot about prognosis and smoking, just in a prospective cohort, again, it may be recall bias, so don't get me wrong, none of these studies are good as I noted. But this is, I thought I would just bring that out to remind you about what we do know about smoking, which is mostly we don't know much. Now, one thing that is very interesting. I found this study very interesting. They looked at smoking and age of diagnosis. So I want you to, and, and really like, I think you'd really appreciate the sort of how they looked at this because they looked at NOD2 and they actually looked at the prevalence of NOD2 based on age of diagnosis. So they broke up when people were diagnosed with IBD and they were basically saying that is there compounding between the impact of NOD2 on when you present and is it related to smoking? Meaning, is that the interaction? Well, what's interesting is, as you get an older diagnosis, smoking is more tied to age of diagnosis being older, 
and, and NOD2 is more associated with age of diagnosis is younger. So it makes sense. I think we do say that genetics impact age of diagnosis the earlier, and environment impacts age of diagnosis later. So I, I thought this was a really interesting study because it was the first time that it looked at how genes and the environment may impact when someone presents. So I think that's, um, and kids is the best place to start because smoking incidence is lower. So I thought this was really interesting to to sort of deconstruct the notion that smoking impacts age of on, um, uh, diagnosis of IBD. So a little science before we get into um, much more interesting stuff, which is the role of cannabis and the biology. This slide actually just talks to the biology of the receptor, both CB1 and CB2. And I just wanted to so, sort of show you where they have impact in the gut and uh, what are some of their features and why they may be helpful to IBD symptoms. And I'm clear to say symptoms. As you'll see, um, the biology is really not uh, at this point impacted by by um, cannabis, but much so more the symptoms, and I'll show you a whole bunch of data on that, which is was kind of fun to, to put it all together. But this is just sort of showing you what it could do in the gut and why there may be a reduction in pain, why there is a reduction um, in um, nausea, why there may be an increase in appetite. A lot of it is driven by the CB1 receptor and its impact on motility, especially gastric impact, and then also pain is hit by both the CB1 and the CB2 receptor. So as you can imagine, pain is really the number one factor that we see is improved in IBD patients, particularly Crohn's disease, um, and you'll see some of the risk factors that highlight which patients are sort of um, tend to be prescribed both by physicians as well as just um, smoking marijuana in general. This is sort of an updated graph on state laws of cannabis uh, in the U.S. I mean, Canada would be entirely blue, uh, fully legal, um, but I think there's a shortage of cannabis in, in Canada. I saw there was a TV commercial when I was up there. Um, <laughs> so I guess it's being used. Um, so this is just showing you across the different states sort of where they are in terms of medical legal, and I just highlighted where CBD is actually medical. But this is kind of uh, interesting. I'm really bad with geography, but I'm guessing this is Alaska. I'm Canadian. Don't laugh. I really don't know what this is. I always thought Alaska was over here because Sarah Palin saw Russia, so I figure it should be here. I'm just saying. So that's why I was not sure what this represented. Anyway, so this is um, the sort of landscape as of 2018. Um, and I just bring this out as a summary of cannabis in terms of studies for um, and the cannabinoids in humans and IBD. Most of it is happening in Israel. Um, and um, the other studies um, have been in the U.S. in terms of cannabis, and I'm going to walk you through some of them. And just to show you, there's nothing out there. Yeah, the point of this table is just say, wow, there's four uh, studies and three, so that's seven, and yet all our patients are assuming that this drug sort of is, they don't need Western therapy because they hear that marijuana actually cures Crohn's disease. And so part of it is, if you remember the CGH cover, basically when it showed the Naftali study that showed that it, they met their CDAI response, but not remission, and there was no objective biomarker, but it made the cover that CB, that, um, sorry, that can't, um, 
marijuana was actually helping Crohn's disease patients. And that sort of was a problem because we all got the link. I mean, every parent emailed me. It's the same with this Red Hill nonsense that, Anne, you were asking about mycoplasma. But the uh, same concept, if there's anything that is apparently more natural that appears to be impacting Crohn's disease, that's really on first and foremost is what what people want to try, which is like the FMT story. It's all the same kind of concept. So let's talk about what are the clinical characteristics of marijuana users. So this was actually looking at the, uh, in pediatrics, there's not a lot out there, but this is looking at sort of peds, young adults, 18 to 21-year-old IBD patients by use of marijuana. This sort of shows you 60% males. This is sort of the breakdown, much more Crohn's disease than you see, which is a common phenomena that we see. And here you can see that um, there's only a third of patients that were, again, 53, but a third of them, only a third, had never, ever used marijuana. I think that's more than you would have expected. I'm going to guess that it's, uh, I would have expected more had not used, I'm sorry, the opposite. i didn't realize that 70% of patients were actually claiming to have used marijuana 18 to 21. That's, I'm naive. I have an 18-year-old, so I'm really naive. I know she smokes marijuana, but I'm just saying that, like, um, I was naive to the frequency. Um, and here, down here, is just looking at the people that are using it based on remission, which I find very interesting, is obviously patients who were non-users, more of them were in remission. So the idea, and this is self-claimed remission more than actually mucosal remission. So, again, it's always interesting to interpret these studies that are done, sort of who's honest, who remembers, if you're so high, you don't remember. I, I just think that it's really difficult to actually get great data from 18 to 21 year olds talking about marijuana use. But this sort of divides up the characteristics. And I, I just want to highlight that it was usually patients who were not in remission. And you'll see now that it's really about abdominal pain. Um, what's very interesting, and it's consistently found, that diarrhea does not improve with marijuana. It's the one symptom that has been consistently shown in adults and peds where they are not claiming a huge amount of improvement. Um, interesting, you can see here, so complete relief. You could see diarrhea is actually not. And there is some increase, maybe in, there, must, there may be a biologic reason why they may get more diarrhea, who knows. But essentially, everyone says, of course, moderate. I mean, across the board, everyone says, yeah, I think so, because they want to convince themselves that actually you get um, a significant benefit. But I'd have to tell you that, not shocking, that complete relief for pain and poor appetite. Not shocking, right? That's sort of what our patients are using marijuana often for, is for pain and poor appetite. So they're telling us that those are the symptoms that actually uh, I feel better with. So when you look at patient-reported relief of symptoms, again, this is just showing you that in terms of complete relief, it's pain and nausea. So again, in an adult population, the same um, confirmation that these are the two symptoms that are improved um, and, and obviously improvement in appetite. So I just wanted to, and actually the number of people who were using it, the number one reason, abdominal pain, and the more of them were actually Crohn's. So it's a consistent finding. There's not inconsistencies on who's using it and what are the symptoms that they actually uh, improve. But one thing that is very clear, when you look at the NIH promise um, data in terms of those patients who are um, commonly using marijuana, you could see, and this is not surprising to any of us, that pain, nausea, poor appetite could be 
um, substantially more common in patients who have anxiety, depression, and really, of course, pain interference with activities. So that is your patient segment. Please don't be naive like I am about the idea that, you know, if you have patients that are suffering from pain, decreased appetite, complete mucosal healing in a Crohn's patient, it's a very common phenomena, you need to start to look at and send them to your behavioral health intervention team just to at least make sure you are not missing, which a lot of the times we are, we are missing that patients actually have anxiety and uh, depression. I would also say to you that just remember that narcotic use and history of surgery with chronic pain, prolonged hospitalization, somewhat of a PTSD, maybe post-perforation, these are all intertwined. It's you really need to deconstruct these patients because this is really where we get into problems with narcotic and opioid use is the same patient population, which I'll show you in just a moment with the opioids. But the idea that you have patients who have much more common users and patients who have narcotic exposure, obviously ambient, so patients um, who are having difficulty sleeping, increased anxiety. Um, you could see patients who are in uh, overall remission. Medical marijuana was not prescribed. Again, it's the same story. Even physicians are not prescribing marijuana except in the same patient cohort who are asking for it, who are getting it without a medical prescription. So there's a definite disease phenotype that is consistent, and it's a lot of it has to do with previous surgery and chronic pain. And that is something that we are not dealing with enough at all to, in order to actually be preemptive and proactive about that these are the patients at highest risk of opioid and narcotic use. So again, um, <laughs> Josh Korzanek looked at whether or not narcotic use, I mean, sorry, whether marijuana uh, legalization impacted use. And it, in the end, actually, it didn't actually impact what type of patient was using it or who we were prescribing. And guess again, current narcotics and chronic abdominal pain tended to be this persistent phenotype or characteristics of patients that we see um, who are actually current users. Now, one thing you have to remember is that... Um, there are adverse effects tied to marijuana use, which, of course, isn't brought up half the time until you remind them that probably one of our biggest issues is actually memory impairment. And that even, I'll show you in just a moment, at DDW, they showed that even at eight weeks, it didn't do anything for the IBD, as we know, in terms of true mucosal inflammation. But already by eight weeks, there was memory impairment. You know, so the idea that we're dismissing the fact that there are other things that could be happening, there's actually an increased risk, as you know, of individuals who are using it for anxiety, that they have, there's a lot of reports on increased rates of schizophrenia, meaning this was uncovering sort of patients who were using it for mood or affective disorders, that there was an increased rate of schizophrenia. It was in, the, it was in Time magazine, and it was, there was a huge influx or um, newly diagnosed schizophrenia in, these, in the patients who were using it um, for anxiety and depression. So I think cognitive impairment and impaired memory is sort of where we're, we talk a lot to, especially kids that are in college, and sort of I think no one's talking enough about that to them, especially, I mean, the parents are sort of worried about it, but the kids are actually that is not what's sort of on their mind. And this was a study from Naftali that um, was presented at DDW. And what I wanted to say is that in the sham arm, obviously memory impairment was not a problem. But in the THC-treated arm, they had higher rates of memory decline already at eight weeks. So this was where they randomized people. And really, at the end of the day, again, symptoms improved, memory got worse, not much of a change to the biology of the disease, small numbers, we need more data. 
just a, a word on CBD, because that's often parents are asking about CBD oil. What I can tell you, and this is a consistent finding, we haven't found any impact of CBD on the IBD symptoms. And really, what needs to be done is, you know, when you prescribe in states where it's legal for medical, you write it, but the pharmacy makes up some concoction of THC percentage to CBD. And you often, it's not what you were, you're asking for. And so you have to really know what the patient is being prescribed in terms of the ratio of THC. THC to CBD. So opioids continues to be a problem, as we know. Um, the good news is, and this was KT Park and his group, which actually looked at sort of the, based on Truven, which is claims data, uh, pharmacy claims, looking at the use of narcotics or opioids in the pediatric age group by, by year. So over the la- that eight-year period, it pretty well was stabilized around 10% of patients um, had uh, opioid use or chronic opioid therapy. The good news is, at least in this in, in what he found in our in the pediatric cohort is that you could see over time there's a small percentage of patients that end up being chronic narcotic dependent. So over this prolonged period of time, it looks like if you take out from two to four years, anywhere from five to ten percent of our patients are having chronic opioid use. So it's it looks to be not, and we can all attest to this experience. It's much more something we're seeing in our older um, patient population, maybe tied to surgery and increased surgical rates. Hard to say. One thing we know for sure is there is increased healthcare utilization and there are predictors of chronic opioid use and I just want you to know that of course mood is a huge impact this is multivariate and this is just showing you everything that is actually uh, p-value significant female patients uh, have higher rates of chronic opioid therapy you could see over age 25 to 29 which is maybe why our rates are smaller in the 15 to 19 where the reference arm you could see regionally um, where you have the highest um, use of narcotics, um, yay, West Coast. And then um, in terms of Crohn's versus UC, it just shows you, again, Crohn's is the reference population, less than UC. Again, less about, I mean, there are definite patient characteristics that we are teasing out that are both marijuana and opioids, I think, are tied together in the same type of patient population. So I just wanted to sort of bring out the idea that you need to know who these patients are. We need to be able to proactively identify them so that we can actually get them before they become chronically narcotic dependent. And one of the last points which I found so fascinating, and this affects everyone in this room, probably I put this slide up more than for our patients, everybody is tired. I'm exhausted right now. Um, And so what they ask about is whether or not you're a morning person or an evening person and how that impacts inflammation and stress. It is not shocking that if you're early to bed, early to rise, and you're full of energy, and you go out there, you are much better functioning than those of us that are sleep deprived, have trouble falling asleep, um, getting up late, going to bed late, getting up early, I guess is our problem, but going to bed late and getting up late, like my daughter, um, is really impacting um, quality of life. And actually, they actually showed that morningness, meaning how peppy you are in the morning, was actually protective against inflammation and against flares. So the idea that um, fatigue or sleep deprivation is probably the way I would think about it uh, is a problem for inflammation. And they've actually showed that the Pittsburgh um, Sleep Quality Index showed that if you have better quality sleep, and this was been presented at DDW like two years ago, there was a run on fatigue, and it was all about sleep quality and exercise. If you, I don't know if you remember that. But basically they were showing that the better sleep you have 
therefore, if you have worse sleep, you have more symptoms and worse quality of life. If you have better sleep patterns, you have better uh, outcomes. And so a lot of kids and parents, especially now in senior year, for example, junior year, up all night doing homework. I mean, this is in, you know, in the high school. There's a lot of fatigue. I'd say the number one thing parents are most upset, great, their stools are normal, they're not in pain, but they're always tired. You know, and fatigue is especially around college application time frame, September till until ED or EA, which was this week for um, a lot of our patients who who were high achievers. Um, And then so the idea is once applications are in, they tends to be a, a real, you know, they get less tired, but fatigue is such at the heart of a lot of our symptoms. And even at the meeting, in, on, on the main meeting, they talked about the impact of fatigue as well and um, the chronic depression that goes along also with fatigue. So I think there's so much that is going on, and I just wanted to bring it out that there is a lot of interest in circadian rhythm um, and, sleep, and, sleep, and sleep quality impacting also anxiety, by the way. So if you're if you're not, if you're exhausted and you're on, under a lot of stress, then anxiety gets amplified. So um, thank you very much for asking me to give this lecture and to thank you for your attention.